Hello, everyone. Welcome to another season of Zero. I am super excited. It has been a little bit too long, um, but thanks for your patience. I hope you are excited for this upcoming season. Um, very much in the spirit of the last uh, couple of themes of zero waste and uh, sustainability, uh, this particular season is going to be focusing on uh, the broadly on the theme of climate change, uh, focusing in particular on the significant waste streams that we're emitting into the atmosphere in the form of greenhouse gases and carbon dioxide. And I'm very excited. It's um, going to be very similar uh, in, in kind of approach as the previous season where there's going to be kind of an ongoing seasonal theme. Um, and in particular, within climate change, we're going to be focusing on what uh, really some kind of uh, important findings that were released by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC. They released a synthesis report, um, and we'll talk at de in, in depth uh, about what that means throughout the season. Uh, in March earlier this year, a culmination of about eight years of effort, um, and it's their sixth cycle that IPCC has released in terms of basically providing a regular assessment of the scientific basis of climate change, its impacts and future risks, as well as options for adaptation and, and mitigation. And so um, I, as part of this uh, season, we're going to be engaging with authors, uh, scientists uh, from around the world who were participated and authored these reports and uh, really get their insight into what is the latest understanding that we have, what what is the status of climate change, um, what is the scientific basis and what can be done about it. So that is kind of the theme, um, which I'm excited about. Uh, it's gonna have, we'll, we'll work, uh, learn together over the next few weeks or so. Uh, and really understand from a global perspective, what, what is the state of climate change? Broadly, it's gonna be broken up into three broad uh, chunks of, of discussions. First one, and it's aligned with the actual structure of the IPCC's reports. First one's gonna be focusing on the actual physical science, what is happening currently, what happened in the past, and what is the future of climate change. The second area that we're gonna discuss is over the season is the impacts, adaptation, and vulnerability. So what that means is, as this climate is evolving, what are the vulnerabilities that we see in the natural ecosystems? What are some of the vulnerabilities that we see within the socioeconomic realm? Um, and then the third area is mitigation broadly. And so how do we take steps to mitigate climate change? How do we assess methods for reducing greenhouse gas emissions? Uh, and that's gonna be the theme over the course of the, the, the season, um, which I'm very excited about. So make sure to follow along if this is of interest to you. And um, for the first episode, uh, I think we're gonna off to a great start. I'm very excited. We're gonna be having Dr. Greg Flato join us. He is the Acting Director of Climate Research Division within Environment and Climate Change Canada. And he has spent his career in the development of a series of global climate models uh, that are used to simulate uh, historical climate variations and then use those same models to project future climate change. So it's a really kind of wealth of information of what uh, has been changing. Um, and he's been, he's been involved in the IPCC for, for many years now, um, both as an author and most recently as the vice chair of Working Group One. We'll talk a little bit about what that means in, in the episode. 
um, and was also one of the drafting editor authors and review editors. So super exciting to have him join the podcast. So hope you enjoy. The IPCC, which is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, was established in 1988 uh, to provide the scientific authoritative assessments of the state of climate science for governments around the world upon which to base uh, climate policy, international climate policy and, and domestic climate policy. So the IPCC was was established under the auspices of the World Meteorological Organization and the UN Environment Program. And it has, you know, its, its, its structure is kind of independent from those organizations. So it's a standalone structure. Its membership is government. So 195 member governments, they are the, what we call the, the panel, those the representatives from those governments. And that's the body that makes decisions and ultimately approves all of the reports. And then the, the IPCC has a, a, a bureau which is elected every cycle. At the start of each cycle, a bureau is elected. And that bureau in, includes the chair, three vice chairs, and then the three working group bureaus, which have co-chairs and vice chairs. And so I'm elected as a vice chair of working group one, which deals with physical climate science. Working group two deals with impacts and adaptation to climate change. And working group three deals with mitigation and socioeconomic aspects of climate change. So those are the three working groups. There's also a task force on greenhouse gas inventories, which provides input to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change related to how greenhouse gases are monitored or measured in the atmosphere and, and how they're reported to the UNFCCC by individual countries. So that's also a part of the, the IPCC, which is kind of has a specialized purpose. And then, as you said, it's we've, we're now just completing the sixth assessment cycle. There have been, you know, it, it, each cycle lasts for about six or seven years. This one was a bit anomalous because it lasted, you know, because of COVID, obviously it, everything got stretched out a bit. So it's, it's more like eight years. And during that period, we produce some special reports in this in this case we produced three special reports and then the three main working group reports the working group one two and three reports which are large documents you know several thousand pages long and then a, a synthesis report which draws all of that together and that synthesis report is what was concluded and approved by governments in in switzerland last month thank you yeah that that's um I can attest to the fact that they are significant efforts and undertakings. I, I looked at a few of the documents and <laughs> it was, they are very extensive. So, <laughs> um, but it is, it is in some ways um, a testament to the, the, how much information and understanding we do have about the state of climate change at this point. So can you just speak, you know, we, we've always had six cycles now, as you just said, how has the, the science evolved? Obviously, that's a big question, but maybe how, how has the process evolved and how have we adjusted over the cycles as we learn more? Well, maybe just before I get to that, what I, I, I should also say about the IPCC is that the, the although the Bureau is elected and decisions about uh, process and how, uh, how reports are 
are launched is made by government. The actual writing of the reports is done by by scientists from around the world who volunteer their time. It's not it's not a paid undertaking. It's not staff. It's not UN staff that write this report. It's it's scientists from around the world, either government scientists or academic scientists, who volunteer their time to to write these these reports. So it's a huge effort by you know, many, many hundreds of people around the world who who give up their time to to work on these reports. I just want to lay that out because that that's really how it how it works and and it can't work without all, all of these scientists volunteering their time to do that. In terms of the evolution, um, the you know, as you've noted, the amount of of climate science information that's available to be assessed has grown remarkably over the last thirty years that the IPCC has been in place 30 plus years i guess um and so these the reports have gotten longer as a consequence because uh in order to to fully assess all of that literature it takes more pages to do that uh and what what that allows if you sort of look back over even just the the summary for policymakers of the synthesis report which is the shortest document it's typically around 20 pages or 30 pages or something like that and if you looked at those over time uh you would see that there's there's been a substantial evolution in our scientific understanding and the confidence that we have in various statements particularly the the statement about the extent to which humans are responsible human activities are responsible for climate change and you can trace the the strengthening of the language over time that reflects the the strengthening of the evidence base that we have the strengthening of our scientific understanding that that we have about that top topic and there are many other examples like that where we are able to say more and we're able to say things more confidently now than we were in in earlier reports yeah, uh, and I imagine it's a combination of both the strengthening strengthening of the evidence as well as our models that can kind of provide that confidence based on the information we have. Um, I definitely want to talk about the kind of the findings and, and your work that's been supporting that absolutely. Um, but before we get to that, I just one one quick question in terms of the IPCC is, you know, I'm curious to know what it isn't because I I, I am under I, I am aware that, you know. The IPCC provides, in some ways, a menu of options based on the science that we we know, but tends to step back from actually providing recommendations um, for the panel. So, can you just talk about that dynamic and how that how the the writers who are volunteering their time, um, how that balances with the actual 195 panel board with uh, the government members? Yeah, so that's a really important uh, issue and. The IPCC was was constructed to be and and has always maintained its its political neutrality. So it is it's not a political body. It doesn't have a political agenda, and it doesn't provide any prescription. It's so the the kind of mantra is is policy relevant but not policy prescriptive. So we assess the science in a neutral objective way just laying out what the evidence is how much evidence we have what that evidence tells us how confident we are if there's different lines of evidence that maybe lead to to somewhat different conclusions we we describe all of those and then assess the confidence that we have in certain things and and present that in a in a neutral way but in a language and in a format 
that ideally supports uh, its use by by policymakers. That's fundamentally what the IPCC is for. Of course, it's, it supports a, a much broader audience as well. The main reports, the big thick reports that underpin the kind of policy doc relevant documents, the summaries for policymakers, those bigger documents, uh, policymakers would typically not read those. They're, they're, they get quite technical. They're aimed more at the scientific community in terms of, of reviewing where we're at, what our state of knowledge is on various things, where there are gaps in our knowledge. They're used a lot in, in education. So in university education for people studying climate science, they, they serve as a, as a reference for that. So they serve a number of, of audiences, but first and foremost, it's aimed at producing authoritative, uh, well-reviewed, objective assessment of the state of climate science so that governments and because all governments uh, approve these documents at the end of the day they all concur that that is in fact the state of the science and so when it comes to making policy uh, you know when when policy is debated and discussed in in fora like the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and the, the Paris Agreement that the, the discussion starts from that scientific basis there's no no negotiation of what the science tells us it's that's now been agreed by governments and the, then the negotiation can focus on more the political uh, implications of that in a different form yeah it's interesting I, I i i do appreciate your comment that there are each document may have different audiences and obviously the the thousand page working group one report let's say obviously has one a very different audience than summary where I, I was I kind of reviewed both and, and minimally at least to just to just understand and summaries are, are very kind of like bullet points like these are like these are conclusions and you go through 20 pages of conclusions from the report which is interesting um this is probably a difficult question but given the this eight years of effort and the thousands of pages that have gone into it but what are some for the audience what are some key findings that we now know were kind of understood over this latest cycle? Are there some key messages or takeaways? Well, I think that one of the key messages, which is not really a, a, a new finding, but just a reinforcement of a finding that, that we have, you know, the IPCC has presented in several past reports, is that, you know, the climate is changing. We observe uh, the climate changing. We observe the climate warming and, and many of the other consequences of that warming climate, like changing precipitation patterns, reduced snow cover period, less sea ice, uh, you know, lots of things that that are directly connected with, with warming climate. That changes the way the atmosphere works in terms of the extreme events and their severity and, and frequency, changes the way ocean circulation operates, changes the way ecosystems function. So it's, you know, that change is being documented in many more ways now than it was in, say, the first assessment report, because we have much more observational data to look at more kinds of observational data, satellite data that now we have, you know, a couple decades of records of satellite data or three or four decades, which were, you know, at the early stages of the IPCC were, were only short little snippets. So the evidence base is, is much stronger it's very clear that that the primary cause of that warming is due to anthropogenic emissions of, of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases, carbon dioxide being the, the main one. 
The other uh, thing that was really discussed in the last assessment report and, and reiterated in this one is that in order to, to stop warming, uh, to stop the, the increasing temperature and all the consequent effects of that, the only way to do that is to get to, to what we call net zero emissions. And that means that any emissions, particularly of carbon dioxide that go into the atmosphere have to be offset by, by removals of some kind. And so nature already removes some of the carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. The ocean takes some up, the land takes some up, but the balance remains in the atmosphere and causes warming. And because carbon dioxide lasts for such a long time in the atmosphere, that warming is kind of built in to the system on, on human time scale. So in order to stabilize warming and not have not have temperature keep increasing, we have to get to the point where our emissions are are low enough that we can offset any of the really hard to to mitigate ones. We can't we can't eliminate everything. So, but you have to get very close because re reducing or removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere is is really tough. So that you know the whole discussion around what are emission pathways that would get us to a stable climate at one and a half or two degrees you know, in line with the Paris Agreement? What do those emission pathways look like? And what, what do the socioeconomics of those pathways look like? What does that mean in terms of energy supply and uh, you know, transportation and, and various other sectors that, that, that uh, cause these emissions? So that's it, the, this report, I think, uh, kind of shifted a little bit more, or this whole assessment cycle shifted a little bit more towards the what does this mean as opposed to what is it? So I think that's that's been kind of an evolution. Fascinating. Yeah, that's, that's interesting that that shift has been taking place. Um, I want to explore a little bit uh, the what is it question, obviously, because you, you have spent decades kind of understanding that, particularly as, as part of the Canadian Center for Climate Modeling and Analysis. And I'm sure that's been a very interesting uh, journey for you because of how much more information and data that we have can then inform your kind of subsequent analyses and, and modeling. So um, can you just speak a little bit to your work at this particular center? I know a key theme is, is um, climate and earth system modeling. So maybe just unpack that and understand what, what your focus has been there. Sure. So the the work we do is, and our center, the Canadian Center for Climate Modeling Analysis, is 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 a, an Environment Canada group. It's part of the Climate Research Division. Uh, there are a number of institutions like that around the world. When I started in in nineteen ninety two or something, uh, there were only about you know a, a handful. You could count the number of centers uh, around the world on one hand. And, and ours was one of those. That number has grown now. There are, there are maybe 40 or so modeling centers around the world uh, these, you know, in the current, uh, you know, that, that are, whose results are described in the current IPCC report, let's put it that way. Uh, what, these, what these climate models are is, is basically computer simulations of the atmosphere, the land surface and the ocean and increasingly the ecosystems that are part of that. So that's the distinction between what we refer to as a climate model, which is basically a physical model of the three-dimensional atmosphere, the three-dimensional ocean, the land surface, and how they interact and, and evolve. 
that that just re responds to physical forcing. Uh, but then we have made this evolution into what are called Earth system models by adding uh, an interactive representation of the carbon cycle so that we can simulate when you put emissions into the atmosphere, where do those emissions go? How much is taken up by the land? How much is taken up by the ocean? And that involves having a representation of, of terrestrial ecosystems, so forests and grasslands and so on, and a, a representation of ocean ecosystems and ocean chemistry that uh, is involved in the carbon cycle. So that's that's been the, the big evolution over the last two decades or so. What these 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 models are is, is just big computer programs that you know take advantage of, of you know long uh, established science of, of computational fluid dynamics which is used in numerical weather prediction it's used in in simulating airflow past uh, a wing on an airplane to design aircraft and, and rockets and so on so it's a, a well-established field uh, but then the the extra physics that's in, involved in a, in a climate model is things like radiative transfer. So the sun, uh, you know, solar radiation from the sun uh, being absorbed at the surface, interacting in the atmosphere, long wave radiation being uh, re-emitted back into space, how that changes as the atmospheric uh, constitution changes. Um, that's, that's the kind of thing that we simulate. So it's a full computer representation of the three-dimensional Earth system from the top of the atmosphere to the bottom of the ocean. And we typically do simulations that start in pre-industrial time, say 1850, not quite pre-industrial, but you know early enough, and then simulate through to the present using observed uh, emissions or observed concentrations of greenhouse gases and other, other forcings like volcanic eruptions, which also affect the climate. So we can simulate the historical climate and using all of the observations that we have, we can ask how well were we able to simulate the observed climate and where we're where there are things that we simulate more poorly, that, that indicates a shortcoming in our model that we have to work on. And then for the future, we rely on different emission scenarios because we can't predict what human activity will lead to over the coming century in terms of things like population growth and technological development and energy intensity and so on. That's another sort of area of research that, that works on making projections about how that, how the you know, socioeconomic structures will change and how emissions resulting from that will change. We input that into our, uh, our system model and then make what we call projections of future climate. That is, how would the climate change given a high emission scenario how would climate change, given a, an emission scenario that's compatible with the with the Paris Agreement and different scenarios in between, and then summarize that information? And modeling centers from around the world um, undertake those kind of experiments in a coordinated way. Uh, that's a whole other story, but how it's coordinated, and then the IPCC assesses those results and and looks at what do these you know what does the future look like in terms of of um, future emissions and how that will affect climate. Yeah, that's very fascinating. And in some ways it's, it feels um, almost daunting. That's it's to know, you know, to have uh, an understanding of, of surface temperatures, both on land and sea, both uh, throughout the, the atmosphere and, and, and to the depths of the ocean, as well as general 
greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, that's an enormous amount of data. Presumably you partner, like how, how does that data incorporated? Where, where is that being generated? And I assume the modeling institutes aren't necessarily generating the data, right? How does that work? Yeah, so it's, it is a distributed effort. So there are uh, organizations that deal with, with collecting those observations and then analyzing them assembling them into large global data sets. So in Canada, for example, um, within Environment and Climate Change Canada, I'm in the science and technology branch of, of Environment and Climate Change Canada. So we do the research activities, but the, we also have the Meteorological Service of Canada, which is also part of our department. They, uh, in addition to producing weather forecasts that everyone knows about and relies on, they also run the observing network across Canada that makes all of the, the temperature and precipitation and snowfall measurements and, and things across the country. Uh, and they collect those, those data, archive them. They come back to us in the science and technology branch where we, uh, we uh, reanalyze them to account for inhomogeneities in the data because if you if you take a station and move it to a different place then the temperature record that you get there is going to have a, a disruption in it and we have to smooth those things out there's all kinds of techniques for doing that and then they get uh, submitted to a global database that is is organized by the world meteorological organization and then redistributed to uh, to countries around the world there are other institutions that do what's called reanalysis, where you take all of these observations, feed them into a global model, similar to the, the kind of climate model I was just describing, and, and produce a, a best estimate of the evolution of temperature and precipitation and wind and surface pressure, all these kind of meteorological variables uh, that, that combines the, the observations that are available and the physics that's, that's part of the model to fill in gaps and, and areas that are uh, less well observed you know parts of the arctic parts of africa and south america are are less well observed than say europe where it's very densely observed and so in order to produce a homogeneous data set that covers the whole globe you have to do a lot of extra processing to, to fill that in so there is there's lots of work that is kind of aligned to and and connects with um, with climate science that uh often has its its sources in, in meteorology or oceanography. It's an impressive amount of coordination. Um, the fact that this is being able to be accomplished on a global scale, obviously there's different levels of granularity of observation from a geographic perspective, but it's still quite, you know, it's quite cool actually. Um, you, you mentioned having various scenarios. We obviously can't predict the future, but we can have a good understanding of what some scenarios can be subject to varying levels of greenhouse gas emissions, maybe with a focus on Canada, but if, feel free to expand to a global level. What, what, what are those scenarios that you're seeing and what are the models anticipating based on, on what we've, we've, we've found in the last couple of years? One of the important things for Canada is, is to, well, one of the, just the features of the climate system is that it's not uniform. The, the climate is not the same everywhere it's not the same in victoria where i live uh, than it is in toronto it's it's not the same in the tropics as it is in the high latitudes and you know so obviously the climate is different uh, around the world and also climate change is different around the world when you add greenhouse gases even though 
most of them are well mixed, at least carbon dioxide particularly is well mixed around the globe. Uh, the response of the climate system to that uniform increase in carbon dioxide is not a uniform warming, but rather warming that has a pattern to it. And that pattern is, is that the warming is larger over land than it is over ocean. And it's larger at high northern latitudes than it is in the tropics. So as a land, northern northern land country, uh, Canada experiences more warming than the global average by about a factor of two. If you average over all of Canada, our warming that we have observed so far and the warming that we project in the future is, is roughly double the rate of, of the global average warming. And if you go to higher latitudes, you know, northern Canada, Arctic Canada, that number is is three or or even more, depending on, on how far into the Arctic Ocean you go. So the the as as the globe warms, as the Earth warms, Canada warms more rapidly, and so that means that the impacts of a changing climate are are larger for us in some ways than they are in in other places. Although of course those impacts differ depending on where you are. In Canada, for example. Our, the projections are that we would see an increase in precipitation over most of the country, whereas in other countries that are already water stressed, the projections are that they would see a decrease in precipitation. So depending on where you are, that will mean a different different thing. But even there, the 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 seasonality of that change is is also important. It's not just the spatial pattern, but also when things happen. And so in Canada, for example, that change in precipitation that we project in the future is generally an increase. But if you look at summertime precipitation, it's a decrease uh, over most of the prairie provinces. And 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 so that combined with, with warmer temperatures, presumably will have an impact on, on agricultural production. And that would be different than the than the impact on coastal British Columbia, for example. So it's it it really depends on where you are. And that's why we we produce a lot of downscaled information that is using additional models to produce higher resolution, more detailed uh, projections of future climate uh, for Canada that allow decision makers, designers, others to to have information that's more suited to the to the things that they are particularly concerned about. So yeah, we will see changes in terms of the future emission scenarios. There are uh, you know, scenarios in which we could stabilize warming at globally at one and a half or two degrees. Uh, but those involve very rapid and very deep emission reductions starting essentially now. In order to stabilize temperature at one and a half degrees, we would have to be uh, at at net zero emission CO2 emissions by about 2050. And, you know, that means reducing very rapidly from from where we are now. Uh, there's scenarios that would get us to two degrees if we reach net zero by later in the century, like 2070 or something. But if we don't get to net zero, then uh, the the globe will continue to warm, and Canada will continue to warm at twice that rate. Yeah, that's that's uh, sobering to to understand. Um, just one brief question: You mentioned obviously that in these models we that we can assume or we know that. Uh, Greenhouse gases are well mixed throughout the atmosphere, evenly, generally evenly distributed. What, given that, why why are we seeing such an impact at higher latitudes and over land, as opposed to at the equator and over the ocean? 
So it has to do with with several processes. So the difference between land and ocean is is largely the difference between a relatively dry surface and a relatively wet surface. So a, a wet surface, uh, when you add extra heat to it, it can evaporate moisture that takes up that takes heat to cause evaporation and the surface can remain cool. So, you know, that's the difference between going outside on a hot day and being dry or going out on a hot day and just having had a shower, you feel much cooler if you go outside when you're, when your skin is wet because it's able to cool off. And also differences in the heat capacity between land and ocean. So that, that the contrast between land and ocean is, 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 you know, based on their different properties of, of land and ocean the high latitude uh, change involves a number of things. It involves changes in the way that moisture is transported to, to the high latitudes. It involves changes in the surface characteristics. So if you overland, for example, if you reduce the amount of snow cover or reduce the time over the year where there's snow cover on the ground, you cut, the, the land cover is darker on average than it would have been if it was snow covered and therefore absorbs more solar radiation rather than reflecting it like a bright white surface of snow or sea ice does. So the number of processes like that that lead to this amplification uh, of warming in the, in the high latitudes. And those are, we see that in observations and we see it in, in these model simulations as well. Yeah, thank you, that's very helpful. Um, so you, you uh we we um obviously there's a special report on on 1.5 degrees centigrade um and you mentioned that the you know we basically have to have deep decarbonization almost immediately and and that's zero by 2050 if we want to achieve that um i want to talk a little bit about what those you know these two these are two obviously very critical numbers you know either one point or basically what degree on average we're increasing I want to talk about a little bit about the implications and also timescales. There's a there's a there's a component of timescales we talk about human timescales, which is quite short. But then obviously some of these analyses and models that you're undertaking are on the order of centuries, right? So many many generations. So can you just talk a bit a little bit about? I feel like there's a some magical line that a lot of policymakers have of 2100. You know everything happens. <laughs> we're talking on the 2100 scale, but obviously these emissions are locked in for much longer than that. So what what happens? There's a transition period, but what are the implications between 1.5 and 2 long on a longer scale? Yeah. So the, the you know these these numbers like 1.5 and 2, just like 2100, you know, there's nothing magical about these. They're they're kind of arbitrary numbers used as as sort of mile milestones or markers. Um, the the one and a half degree number is it comes more from the climate impacts community looking at the the impacts of a warming climate on all sorts of things ecosystems and and human uh, activities uh, agriculture communities health all of these things if you look at the the negative consequences of a warmer climate um, the, many of those impacts start to become more profound at around one and a half degrees and then many of them get in fact, all of them get get more and more profound as as the warming gets larger and larger. So there's a there's a, a gradation there in terms of of how uh, you know how severe the impacts will be at any given level of warming. And it doesn't it's not like a you know at one one point five you hit some threshold where suddenly it changes to something else. It's it's a it's a gradual sort of thing. There are a few areas in which 
you can experience so-called tipping points where, you know, you reach a certain threshold and then something happens and you can't really recover from that. And we're already seeing some evidence of that in things like tropical corals, where these massive bleaching events that are associated with a, a warming a warming ocean water are leading to massive die-offs. And it takes a long time to recover from that. Even if you were able to get temperatures back down somehow, it would be it would take a long time for for uh, you know those those kind of systems to recover. So these these temperature thresholds are really kind of indicative markers of how uh, how severe the impacts of a warmer climate will be. And the Paris Agreement was to 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 keep warming well below two degrees and strive for for one and a half degrees as a as a way of of providing a you know a concrete marker for what you would have to achieve in order to avoid the most severe consequences of a warming climate. Um, the other part of your question in terms of the long time scale is that even if we get to net zero, net zero doesn't bring us back to a, a, the climate that we experienced when we were children. It just stabilizes climate at whatever temperature we have reached by then. So reaching net zero by 2050 would get us to a stable climate of around one and a half degrees warmer than pre-industrial. And it would just stay there. If we reach net zero by 2070 or something, we will have reached a temperature of about two degrees globally. And if we maintain net zero from there on, that temperature will remain at, at two degrees for, for centuries. And that that elevated temperature has consequences for the slow parts of the climate system, particularly the large ice sheets on Greenland and Antarctica, which accumulated over many, many millennia. And they are not in equilibrium with a warmer climate. They're in equilibrium more or less with the climate of the Holocene, which is the last 10,000 years, which has been relatively stable in terms of temperature and other climate features. Uh, you know, there have been fluctuations, but it's been relatively stable. And that's what those ice sheets are, are in equilibrium with. So if you warm the climate to one and a half or two degrees, those ice sheets slowly begin to, to lose mass and that lose water. And that water goes into the ocean and leads to uh, sea level rise. Uh, it also, the ocean, even at a, a constant surface temperature, that ocean is also in equilibrium with a temperature that's the kind of pre-industrial temperature. And it takes a long time for the ocean to warm up to equilibrium with some new temperature value. And as the ocean warms up, it expands, and that also leads to, to sea level rise. And we can measure both of those things. And so even though, uh, even if you stabilize temperature, you will stabilize a lot of the, the impacts of, a, of climate change but sea level will continue to rise for centuries beyond that. And, and even if you get to one and a half degrees, sea level still rises. If you get to higher levels, it rises even more. And the, the effects are not as profound by say the year 2100, but if you go out to the year 2300 or something, which we do in some of these projections, then you can see that you know sea level values of, of, of several meters are, are uh, projected then, which would be devastating for many coastal areas. A lot of human population lives in coastal areas. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. That's really, really uh, insightful. Um, 
you mentioned the the concept of a tipping point. Um, I'm wondering how does that play a role as you try to project or create these models over however many decades or centuries? Uh, because imagine in some ways it's hard to draw on past data without having really had tipping points. So how do you how do you make those those hypotheses or, or conjectures? Yeah, it, it, that's a tough area, and and there are you know there are there are some features that we can well there are some things that you can just understand from from basic physical principles. That is things that rely on the the melting point of water at zero degrees C. So if you, you know, things like permafrost ice sheets, I already talked about, you know, if you, if you raise the temperature of the globe, well, then the, the, the ice is no longer in equilibrium with, with that temperature and has to, has to, you know, some of it melts. Uh, same with permafrost. Permafrost is in equilibrium with a, a cooler climate, the climate of the, of the Holocene. And if we warm that climate up, some of that permafrost begins to thaw and uh, some of it contains carbon dioxide or carbon in, and is released either as carbon dioxide or methane, which adds to the, the greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So that's another process that, that uh, you know, once you start it, you can't really unwind it again. So there are a number of things that, that we just, we know from, from basic, um, you know, basic physics of the situation, similar to, you know, the, the changing uh, location of, Things like forests and grasslands. You know, forests and grasslands are 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 where they are because of the soil that they're on, and also because of the climate conditions that they they have been uh, you know that they have uh, grown acclimatized to. As you change the climate, then those boundaries can can move, and certain species will no longer be able to live in certain areas and will move somewhere else. Uh, so, so some of these things are are pretty easy to see. Some of them are a bit less uh, easy to to see exactly how they they work. Although there are mechanisms for for many other kinds of tipping points, and there is evidence in the past of certain you know in the paleoclimate uh, uh, literature, uh, you know the studies of climates of, of much further in the past based on proxy information like tree rings and sediment cores and ice cores and things where you can see evidence of some rapid changes in the climate system. Most of those provoked by the change from an ice age to a, to an interglacial period. So there are, there is evidence of, of many of these things and, and people have been uh, looking at, at what that evidence is and where, what kinds of, of tipping points could come about but it's still pretty early days in that that area of research. Yeah, it, it, that's interesting. It's fascinating to see, like some of these. Uh, yeah, the the role of water is obviously becoming, and just like the physics of water, it clearly is becoming a very um, well, always has been, but more so. Uh, I don't think it, it dawned on me how impactful it is in terms of just how do we project where this world is going uh, in the future, just based on you know heating heating ability. Um, I want to shift a little bit to the to the the what it means theme, and I know you mentioned that uh, that's where the the IPCC has been shifting slightly towards. Um, I was intrigued about the the role of of kind of having a hyper focused or regional understanding of these broad models. What does it mean for a particular state or or region? Can you just talk about how how do we scale down this information to make it 
So I imagine the the ultimate intent is to make it actionable, right? These policymakers want to be able to use this information, hopefully, um, to influence either adapt or mitigate in their particular community. So how does that actually happen? Where is that scaling down taking place? Yeah, so as you said, the, the two main um, kind of audiences for this are the, the mitigation community, which is really the international policy community and, and the domestic policy community. So the, the, the IPCC results have you know, underpinned the Paris Agreement. They underpin Canada's uh, emission reduction policy. Uh, so, so that's on the mitigation front. What, what do we need to do in order to reduce emissions and how much do we have to reduce them to, to reach certain temperature targets? Or by when do we have to reach net zero to reach certain temperature targets? That that kind of thing. So that's the mitigation area. And that's mainly large scale because it's these well-mixed global, uh, you know, well-mixed greenhouse gases that affect global climate. That's what mitigation is really after. Um, the other side is the adaptation side, uh, the impacts and adaptation. So that typically involves more localized information. And we have different ways of providing that localized information. These global earth system models that I talked about typically have a, a resolution, you know, a, a scale at which information is available uh, at, of, of, you know, 100 or 200 kilometers. So it's it's pretty coarse. It has to cover the whole globe. So it's it's necessarily coarse. And that's limited by the supercomputing capability that we have to be able to run these simulations. But we can provide much higher resolution, finer detailed information using what we call regional climate models, which are the same sort of thing as a global climate model, but with a limited area domain. So we run a, a, climate, a regional climate model that covers North America. So from you know Canada's north down to about the Southern US and off both coasts of Canada and off the northern coast of Canada. And, and that operates at, at a 25 kilometer resolution. We're now working on a 10 kilometer version of that model. We also do statistical downscaling, which is another technique for producing fine scale information. We have a statistically downscaled 10 kilometer uh, product that's available. And that information gets used uh, for example, we worked very closely with uh, the National Research Council and uh, the standards uh, bodies to provide information to support an update of the Canada Building Code and the National Highway and Bridge Design Code to take into account a changing climate. A lot of engineering design is done on the basis of a, a fixed climate based on the observed climate and how that climate has you know, the averages over the last 30 years or so and the variations that have been experienced, the extremes that have been experienced in that uh, historical period. And that's what you design a building on. Well, that works if the climate's not changing, but it doesn't really work if the climate is changing. And so there's there's been a, a kind of evolution of, of uh, design standards for many things that are long-lived infrastructure, buildings and bridges and railways and pipelines and, and you know, storm sewage systems and things like that that have to be in place for for many decades in the future and and so in their design life they will experience a climate that's much different than the climate of the last 30 years and so have to be designed for that so we provide that kind of information we have established uh, within environment and climate change canada another uh, uh, activity called the Canadian Centre for Climate Services, which is a centralized place where 
all of this detailed information is available in, in, a, in a format that's targeted specifically at users. So municipal planners, engineers, uh, people doing uh, agricultural impact studies, uh, you know, all, all those sorts of things, environmental impact studies. Uh, and so the Canadian Center for Climate Services has that information and, and deals with, with users directly to make sure that they have the information they need to make uh, adaptation plans, to look at what impacts will be, to, to design new infrastructure that will be resilient to a climate of the future. And one of the big things there is, is changes in extreme events. So much of the infrastructure is built not really with regard to the average conditions, but with regard to the extreme conditions that it will experience. And and so, for example, here on the West Coast uh, in, in 2021, we had this large atmospheric river event that brought in lots of precipitation, led to huge flooding uh, in the Fraser Valley and in the southern BC, uh, washed out many bridges, uh, railways, pipelines, cut off Vancouver from the rest of the country for, for an extended period. That kind of extreme event is the sort of thing that from our model projections, we see getting more frequent in the future. And we can already observe that some events like that have, have become more frequent than they would have been in the absence of, of human-caused climate change. So those are the kind of things that, that uh, designers have to take into account when when either constructing new infrastructure or rebuilding infrastructure like the infrastructure that was was damaged. So the Canadian Center for Climate Services is kind of the focal point for that. And then there are regional climate service providers that we also support that, um, that work more directly with regional stakeholders to ensure that that kind of information is available to them. Yeah, those are really great examples. Um, it's exciting to see that this uh, these these information sets and these models are having a real world impact just in, even in very very kind of brick and mortar design decisions for for buildings and and bridges so that's that's actually really exciting to hear um thinking ahead and moving forward where where do you see the state of climate modeling and analysis going and what would you like to see kind of the next milestones be accomplished well the the big the thing that we're that is is our focus now and and the focus of many modeling centers around the world is is improving the resolution of these models that is the scale at which we can provide information uh, a lot and and that's tied directly to this issue of extreme events uh, because not only is are the you know resolving these extreme events like extreme precipitation events or flooding events or or ice storms uh, you know those kind of events that that are really impactful um, it's important to resolve those on a fine scale, but just to be able to reproduce those kind of events requires a high resolution model to resolve the, the processes that lead to those kind of events. So that's, that's one of the big areas is taking advantage of increasing supercomputer capability to run high resolution global models uh, and to, to better resolve these, these extreme events and characterize how they, how they will change in the future. Um, so that's one area that's that's particularly important. The other area is really uh, exploring these different scenarios, these different future scenarios in ways that will better support policy analysis and policy development. So 
getting into more of the details of what what kinds of uh, emission reductions strategies will work, how effective will certain kinds of, of um, carbon dioxide removal strategies work in different places, especially ones that rely on on modifying natural systems like uh, forest systems and, and agricultural systems. Uh, so getting to, to the point where we have the capability to really explore future policy implications and, and what their effect on emissions and therefore on climate will be. I think that's that's the two areas that I think many, many modeling centers are, are aiming towards. Well, yeah, that's obviously very important um, and very impactful to be able to achieve that. So my my um my, I'm I'm excited to see where that progresses, where that the science uh, evolves. Thank you very much for your time. Um, I think uh, I very much learned a lot. I'm sure the audience did as well. So thank you, and and looking forward to keeping in touch. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having. Me. Hello again. I uh, hope you enjoyed the episode. Really interesting to learn about the work that is being done in the world of climate modeling and what that means as well for Earth, Earth systems modeling. Obviously, it's a, it's a big, daunting task requiring a lot of collaboration, um, but it's exciting to see that we're, we're starting to see uh, much more uh, granular results, actionable results that we can implement at policy levels to inform decision making. So that's super exciting and really interesting to see how we, we can really understand what is happening at a global scale as well as kind of a local regional scale. So uh, on the topic of, of kind of climate science and physical science, we're going to continue that next week. We're going to be focusing a little bit more on climate variability. So we spoke a lot about just general changes at the global scale on, in this episode, but also understanding in the next episode, what what is the variability and how, do, how are extremes changing uh, within a changing heating climate. So uh, have a good week. We'll we'll check in uh, next week.